Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, since Easter, we have been looking together at the minor prophets, um, one of them each week. And this morning, we're going to look at Micah together. And in particular, we're going to read some words that we normally, I think most of us are used to hearing uh, around Advent and Christmas tide, if we hear those words at all. Um, and usually when we hear them around Advent and Christmas time, uh, the, the painful and difficult history that birthed those words are removed uh, from it. But we will not do that this morning. We will hear the history behind it. So let me read from Micah 5 and Micah 7, the conclusion of the book for us. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible. Or you can just listen as I read from Micah 5 and 7. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not re retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word that we have read and heard together. And we know that it is ancient, that it was written to a people a long time ago. And at the same time, Father, we know that it is alive and active and coursing among us right now. And so we ask that the thing that we just sang together, that we would experience it to be true, that you would remove the scales from our eyes. Any of us here that need to see something, help us to see it. That you would remove the chains from around us. If we need set free, set us free. Father, show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, one of my uh, favorite movies is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's movie Vertigo. Um, I have lost count of the number of times that I've seen uh, that film on both the small screen and the big screen. It's just one of those films that never gets old for me. And the first scene in that movie uh, is about a minute and a half long, but it is justifiably famous. And if you've seen it, 
you know why that's the case, because it opens up into this incredible peril. Uh, after the title sequence, which, by the way, is great in and of its, uh, in its own right, um, after the title sequence, the screen fades to black for a second so that the Bernard Hermann score can get cranked up with these violins and this insistent woodwind that sounds like nothing but trouble is afoot. And then you see a man's hand on a steel ladder, and he is climbing onto the roof of a building at night, and he is moving fast, and it is obvious that he is being chased by someone, and sure enough, just a few seconds later, a policeman with his gun drawn climbs that same ladder and chases after the first guy. Then one more person climbs the ladder, the same one, also in pursuit, and it is Jimmy Stewart. Then there's this wide shot where you see all three of them running over the tops of the buildings at night, separated by just a few feet from each other. And then there is a close shot where the bad guy jumps from one building to another. When the bad guy jumps, he slips on the, the, the steeply sloped roof. And he slips a little bit, but somehow scrambles back up to the top and makes it. Then the policeman makes the same jump. He also slips even further than the bad guy slipped, but somehow he scrambles up to the top. And then Jimmy Stewart makes that jump, and his dress shoes slip on the terracotta tiles of that roof. He slides all the way down that roof, off of the roof, and just catches a rain gutter that bends when he clings to it. And then he looks down, hanging by his fingertips, about six stories above an alleyway. I'm not going to tell you what happens next. The title of the movie is Vertigo, so you can use your imagination. But as opening scenes go, it is gripping, and it is gripping because you are plunged immediately into peril. And that is precisely the feeling that Micah wants to evoke in the opening lines of those words that we just read together. It is the beginning but it feels like it already might be a dire ending. He says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Micah's words are not a metaphor. They are the real deal. He is referring to the siege of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. at the hands of a large and vicious and cruel Assyrian horde that is led by a king named Sennacherib. So Micah was from a small farming town about 21 miles uh, southwest of Jerusalem. He lived and preached in the 8th century BC, which made him a contemporary of the prophet that we hear about a lot, Isaiah, and also a contemporary of the prophet that we looked at a couple weeks ago together, Amos. That means that Micah was alive during this incredibly prosperous time for God's people. But like we saw when we looked at Amos, the prosperity that he saw masked this thoroughgoing rot that had infected every part of society. Micah says the wealthy ruling classes were using the poor to become more wealthy. He talks about them looking at a field and saying, I want it and taking it, or looking at buildings and saying, I want them and taking them because they could. Micah tells us that the priests were using their positions for dishonest gain. Micah tells us that his fellow prophets were selling themselves as fortune tellers in the streets. 
So Micah was not fooled by the wealth. He was not fooled by the power that he saw all around him. He knew that if you peeled the, the corner back on that stuff, the ugliness that you would see would be unbearable. And for his part, Micah wants to pull the corner back. He wants to expose it. So he takes on the kings, and he takes on the ruling classes, and he takes on the priests, and he takes on his fellow prophets, and he uses some of the most shocking language in the prophets. In chapter 3, this is what he says to them. He says, you are building Zion with blood, and you are making things that are straight, crooked, and you are giving judgments out for bribes. He says, you tear the skin off my people. You flay their skin off of their bones, and you eat the flesh of my people. And then you act like everything's okay, and you say to yourselves, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Surely no disaster will fall on us. Micah isn't standing in a corner He's not academically sizing things up. He is not clinically diagnosing the problem for some report he has to write later. He is fully emotionally invested in the plight of his people with blood and with sweat and with tears. Even the regular people, he looks and sees even the people who had grown up like him have wandered away from their God. They've built these high altars and places to gods that they thought would give them the stuff that they wanted. And so in chapter 1, Micah looks at all of this. He looks at his people. He looks at the plight of his people. And his anger is tempered with this deep compassion and this deep pain. He looks all around at his people. And he says, her wound is incurable. It is incurable. He says it through lament and through tears and through mourning. Her wound is incurable, and now it has come to Judah. Now the wound has reached the gate of my people, Jerusalem. The people who had proudly and defiantly said that no disaster would fall on them now know that they were gravely mistaken. This disaster has materialized, and the residents of the holy city and their king, Hezekiah, are pinned in with no way to escape. No hope for relief. Siege is laid against them by the invading king and his bloodthirsty horde. This is their peril, and it looks like the beginning is the end. And I think this is a pretty familiar feeling. I mean, if you could somehow jump into my life, however that would look, and you could look around at my heart and my mind, you'd see pretty quickly what feels like peril to me. If you could get into who I am and look at my heart and look at my mind, you'd see very, very quickly what feels like siege in my life and in the lives of the people that I love. And I know the same thing is true. If I could jump into your life and look around at your heart and your mind, I'd see the same things. I would see what feels like peril to you, what feels like siege all around you. Because we live in a world that is fallen and broken. We live in a world 
where the pieces of our lives don't come together in the way that we hoped they would, in the way that we thought they would, in the way that we frantically tried to manage into being. So what is it that feels like siege to you? Circled around your heart, dark or accusing or shameful or violent. What is it? And what is hope for people like us? So laying, laying siege to a city was a simple and effective way of defeating a people and taking control of their land without really having to fight all that much. The procedure was really straightforward. The invading army surrounded a city and cut it off, so no food, no supplies, no fresh water could get into the city, and anyone who wanted to escape or go for help would be killed or caught. The city, its residents, its military defenders would just get weaker and weaker and weaker. Eventually, they would turn on themselves in desperation. And then usually, the king of the besieged city would give up and surrender to the invaders. The only real hope against a siege was to make sure that a siege never happened, because once it started, it was almost always too late. And the job of making sure that a siege never happened was the job of the person who represented their people. It was the job of the king to make sure this never happened. The king Hezekiah had been com completely humiliated. That's what Micah's writing about when he says, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's an image of a king cowering in a corner, hopeless, helpless to defend himself, hopeless, helpless to defend his people from the attacks of their enemies. He is impotent. And you can read about this in great detail in the book of Kings. In 2 Kings 18 and 19, you can read all about it. Here's what Hezekiah did. Hezekiah sees that Sennacherib is coming and he's sacking all of the little cities and towns around Jerusalem. He's making a bullseye, making his way towards Jerusalem. And his strategy is to rely on a military alliance with Egypt, which fails. And then his strategy is to bribe him and try to placate Sennacherib with money. He actually tells Sennacherib, I will do anything that you ask, anything that you ask. Just don't do this. And then he raids the treasuries of the temple and he gives all of the gold to Sennacherib. And he raids his own treasuries and gives all of the gold to Sennacherib. And in desperation, he strips the gold and the silver from the doors and the doorposts of the temple, gives it all to Sennacherib. That's Hezekiah's strategy in this darkest of moments. Flattery, bribery, scrambling, cross fingers. But I do not want us, church, to distance ourselves too much from the scrambling king. It's good for us, I think, to think about what we do during our siege. I mean, I don't know what it is that is surrounding you, taunting you. Maybe it's pain over a relationship that has been strained. And your strategy to survive it has been to slowly choke that other person out through ignoring them, 
or talking about them when they're not there or pretending like you don't care. Maybe it's bad news from the doctor about your health or the health of someone you love and your strategy in that peril and that siege has been to throw yourself into your work and avoid it. Maybe it's the sting of loneliness and your strategy to survive has just been having one too many drinks every night. Maybe your peril is the crippling pain of abuse that you have suffered. And your strategy has been to just go to the constant distraction of being with people all of the time, never allowing yourself to be alone with your thoughts and your pain. Maybe it's the disappointment of failing at something that really, really mattered to you. And your strategy for surviving has been to retreat into cynicism and irony. Church, if there's one thing people like us know is how to scramble to make things work. The list of things that make people like us feel in peril is as long and as complicated as every one of us in here. The list of things that accuse us it's as long as the number of us in here and our strategies to cope with that stuff. It's, some of it's straightforward and some of it's incredibly complicated, but all of them share one thing, and that is that they do not ultimately work. They never deliver. And so Micah is a great call for us to instead tell the truth with open hands. I am under siege, God. And all of my strategies to cope, all of my scrambling has led me to some pretty painful places in my life and in the lives of the people around me. That's the truth. What would it be like, church, to, to say that truth, to speak it with open hands to God, and to be heard and to hear back, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, because they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because you'll be satisfied. I think that would be the best thing we've ever heard because <laughs> it would mean there would be hope for people like us. And Micah wants us to know this is what hope sounds like. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel whose origin is from old, from ancient days. I mean, it's like out of thin air, out of nowhere, in the context of this horrific siege 
Micah starts talking about a better king, a better king than Hezekiah is coming one day. This better king is coming. Micah's voice out of nowhere starts to rise like so many of the other prophets. The prophets that we've already looked at, his voice rises above the particulars of that moment and begins to talk about a bigger deliverance than even the one God's people need from Assyria in that moment. He says, this better king is familiar to you. He comes from Bethlehem, just like David did, but he is also incredibly unfamiliar to you. The mysterious origins of his birth, it's from old, from ancient days. And Micah says, look, this ruler who's coming, he's not just going to deliver Jerusalem, but in words that are incredibly pregnant with meaning, words that affect us, that speak to us right now here this morning. Micah says he will gather in not just Jerusalem and not just Israel, but all of the rest of his brothers as well. This ruler will be great to the people of Judah, and he will be great to the people of Israel, but the greatness of his name will not stop there. He will be great, Micah says, to the ends of the earth. The whole world will know him. And in the middle of this chaos that is born out of political intrigue and military conquest, Micah does not call this ruler a general. He doesn't say he's going to be a commander. He doesn't describe him as a warrior or a political powerhouse or a charismatic, galvanizing leader of men. Micah says, when he comes, you will recognize him. He will be a shepherd. He does not just come to the lowly. He comes as the lowly. And he will stand and he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. They will be secure. Micah says, this shepherd ruler king won't just bring peace. He will be peace. He will be your peace. The deliverance that we desperately need under siege and in peril, it is coming. And Micah wants us to know it will be better and more beautiful and more lasting than any of the lesser deliverances that we have scrambled to cobble together ever. Now, Micah doesn't know exactly when this is going to happen. He couldn't have imagined what this deliverance would really look like when it came, not in a million years. But, of course, we know. (laughs) It's why we talk about Micah 5 at Advent and Christmas time. Because the wise men, the magi, they make that trek to Jerusalem to find out where is this great king supposed to be born? And the chief priests and the scribes had read Micah 5. They say, well, we think he's supposed to be born over there. And they get there. And they meet this shepherd king named Jesus. So let me tell you something, church. <laughs> Jesus knows about relationships that have gone bad. He knows about relationships that go sour quickly. And he knows what it's like to see someone that he loves in pain and in suffering. He knows what it's like to lose a friend to death. Jesus has known loneliness. It is a loneliness that goes to a depth that is unfathomable, even to the most lonely of us here this morning. And it means that if we are in him, 
we are not alone. Jesus suffered abuse. Unspeakable abuse. And he knows the intimacy of the pain that comes when the work that you do is misunderstood. When the work that you do is ignored. And church, he doesn't know this as a researcher. He doesn't know this as an observer. He knows these things as one of us because he has lived every single one of them. Because he willingly and gladly and happily took on the peril of all of the sieges that you and I have ever felt and will ever feel. He has gladly and willingly and happily taken on his own back the peril of all the sieges that we have caused and a million besides them. And church, because that's true, that means that we are people with hope. We are a people who can be forgiven when we cling to him in repentance and faith. And that means that we are a people, church, we are a people who can give up being the scrambling kings of our own lives. Because if we are in him, we have been given all of the grace and all of the power and all of the peace that we need to face down every siege in our life, every peril in our life with fidelity and with strength because he is working those things in us. He is giving us his fidelity. He is giving us his strength. And so, as the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament lesson, we do not lose heart. So what about Hezekiah and Micah? and the Assyrian horde outside of Jerusalem staring them down. Well, one of the things that I love about this story is that another prophet, Jeremiah, Jeremiah tells us that it is Micah's preaching (laughs) that God used to break old Hezekiah down and crack this whole thing open. (laughs) Micah preached and Hezekiah listened and he turned away from all of his scrambling, all of his cobbling together, all of his goofy plans, And he just opened up and asked God, please deliver these people. And God did. (laughs) You can read about that in 2 Kings 2. And this is the gospel, church. (laughs) The wound was not incurable. And neither is ours. It is not incurable. And we know that this is true because of who God is. That's what Micah talks about at the end of his book. Who is a God like you? You delight in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. This is who our God is, church. The shepherd king who gives himself to us, who gathers us to himself, who leads us with strength, who heals wounds that we thought were incurable, who causes us to dwell secure, 
This is the shepherd king that we see most clearly, fully, fully, perfectly, and completely in our elder brother, Jesus. So let's cling to him in faith. Let me pray for us. Father, you know to a depth (laughs) that we don't even know what feels like siege to every one of us in here. You know the intricacies, you know the complications of the things that make us feel like we are being attacked and cut off, the things that accuse, the things that bring shame, and you know all of the strategies that we have cobbled together to try to king our way out of it. And so we ask, Father, that you would do whatever the work is that you need to do in each of us as individuals and us as a church to help us to drop all of that stuff and to cling to the one who delivers perfectly and completely and fully, who works fidelity in us, who works strength in us. Help us to cling to this one who came from a town that was too little, too small, too insignificant. Help us to cling to him, Father. Heal us for our good and for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in his name. Amen.